Uh, hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well. Uh, so I have with me the, I guess, vaguely Latin-named Vox Day. Uh, he's a three-time Hugo Award nominee and uh, an author of, of course, uh, science fiction, for those who know Hugo is science fiction, and nonfiction books. He has uh, popular blogs, Vox Populi and Alpha Game. They average well over 2 million page views each month. It's amazing what you can do when you put a, a screwdriver on the F5. So uh, we're going to talk about his book, uh, Cacservatives. We're going to dip into Social Justice Warriors Always Lie. And uh, thanks, of course, uh, for, for taking the time. Glad to be here. Always interesting. So Vox Day, I, I'm sure you get asked this all the time. Uh, what up with that? Well, the, the, the etymology of the name? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, just a simple announcement. I mean, if you follow the Latin into Greek, uh, it just simply means voice of Theo, Theo's voice. Um, you know, it's uh, you know, if Vox Dei, Vox God, Vox Theos, Theo's voice. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Now, I... I wasn't sure we were going to start with Michelle Fields, but I, I feel now that you've I know that you've written quite about him. I've read a little bit about him. And uh, Michelle Fields has, uh, I don't know, been a sort of helmet head bullet that's taken down a few of my idols uh, recently. And um, I know you've been following the story. Uh, I wonder if you could help fill in our listeners who haven't been to Breitbart.com and other places where it's been quite um, strenuously discussed. Well, the whole situation is kind of a mess. I mean, the... It was obviously a manufactured incident, um, and you know the story, of course, was that uh, she'd been manhandled, and and it was advertised that she'd been thrown to the ground by Corey Lewandowski, who is one of um, Donald Trump's security guards. And you know it, it sounded really bad, but uh, you know one of one of my friends, uh, Mike Chernovich, quickly identified. You know he smelled a rat from the very beginning. Um, before I did actually, but as soon as, as soon as Mike started poking around, I thought, um, you know, Mike's usually right about these sort of things. And so, um, you know, so what happened was all of the, uh, white knights, uh, Ben Shapiro and, and some of the other people at Breitbart immediately leaped to her defense and, and tried to make a huge federal case of it. Uh, despite the fact that there was absolutely no evidence of anything. Um, and the thing is, is that it was very, very quickly, it was very quickly apparent that there was a serious level of, of deceit going on because the photographer who um, was backing up her story initially claimed to not have been there. But he'd already tweeted pictures from the event that he'd taken. And so... Well, and, and he had uh, a copyright notice on, on the actual picture with his name that he had taken the picture. So it became a little tricky to deny. Yeah, precisely. And so you know, the thing that you have to understand about the media in general and about uh, people of the left in general is that uh, they tend to play very fast and loose with the truth and they tend to do it in a shameless manner that astonishes normal, relatively truthful people. And so uh, the minute that you catch uh, a flaw in the story, you need to look very closely because that's usually just the tip of the iceberg. And that's exactly what turned out to be the case here because, you know, uh, people started lo looking at digging up uh, videos and, and that sort of thing. And soon it became fairly apparent that she hadn't been thrown to the ground. Uh, 
it looked like she hadn't really even been been grabbed. And then it became clear that whoever it was that grabbed her, it was more likely a Secret Service agent. And of course, you know, a Secret Service agent is totally useless to the narrative that they were trying to build because they were trying to build a narrative to attack Donald Trump. You know, that doesn't do them any good if it turns out that it's a, a Secret Service agent just doing his job, keeping people away. And to me, the most damning thing about the whole thing was the fact that Fields was supposed to be covering the Cruz campaign. She wasn't supposed to be covering Trump at all. And so, you know, then, of course, it got out of control because uh, the White Knights doubled down. They started attacking their own people at Breitbart. You know, initially, Breitbart was backing her up. They actually suspended a, a reporter who very responsibly said, hey, let's not leap to leap to any conclusions here. Let's let's see what the evidence says before we start, you know, attacking the you know, this, the Trump campaign. And then, you know, there, there's obviously a bit of a, a serious dis- difference of opinion in Breitbart that, you know, kind of rivals the North-South thing in the Civil War because, they, I mean, the, 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 the messages, internal messages that came out were just amazing, you know. And um, so obviously you had one group that supported Cruz, one group that supported Trump. And I think Fields was really a uh, proxy for that internal struggle. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it is. It seems to me that it would be kind of responsible journalism before you start accusing people of assault to to get the facts. And I was a little bit surprised when they just put out the transcript of this supposed audio. I mean, it's actually easier to just share the audio than it is, you know, to listen to it and and to type it all out. So I was a little bit suspicious when I just heard the um, read the transcript, and it took a little while before the audio came out. And then I did have a listen to the audio and. Um, she did not seem mortally wounded. She did not seem to be hugely traumatized, uh, to to put it mildly. And uh, I began to have some, uh, well, I start off with some doubts. I mean, I, I hate to say it because, you know, this. I've just, in the research that we've done for this show, uh, the, the female false accusation machinery is just humming at such a high top knot these days that my general position is it's false until proven otherwise. Like, I, I hate to be there, but it's just been so relentless over the past uh, few years. Up here in Canada, I just did a show on the Gian Gameshi trial, um, which is where guys got accused of all this terrible stuff. And it turns out these women were kind of stalking him. And like, the position for me is like massive, massive high wall of Humean skepticism until proven otherwise. And I think that is, um, that's a tricky position for a lot of people. Well, I don't really see that you have any choice but to do otherwise. I mean, you know, the, the thing that the, the male mind often has a very difficult time with is the way that um, women are often very caught up in their reality of the moment, you know. I mean, for me, it was really driven home back in, um, you know, in the late or in the early middle 90s, I guess. I used to play in a band called Psychosonic. And we were playing at uh, a, a big nightclub that Prince used to own. And there was this very attractive girl uh, who was in the front row. And at one point in, during the concert, she had like pulled off, you know, pulled off her shirt and all that sort of thing. Basically was. Well, she was warm, obviously. Yeah, warm clearly. There. Yeah. Got it. And, um, and there were a lot of people there dancing. You know. Anyhow, uh, at one point after the show, she had made it very clear that you know she wanted to throw herself at me, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, fine and dandy and all, but um, I, I just said thanks and moved on. But what was interesting is the very next day, 
I was at a mall and, and this girl was right there. I mean, yeah, I ran into her. It was clearly the, the same person. And so I just said hello to her. <laughs> she looked at me like I was some sort of, of insect, you know, that, and, and, you know, context is everything, you know, the, what, what was interesting, um, you know, a, a, a guy being a rock star on stage versus some random guy in the mall, you know, it was, a, it was a totally different reality. And she so had I, to, she had band goggles on, right? So you look like this alpha God ripped dude, right? And then the next day at the mall, you're just you, like I just be me and uh, the, the band goggles are off. Right. And so, and so the, at, at, that was the point at which I, you know, it was kind of, it was funny at the time, but I remember thinking, okay, that was odd. And, and then, you know, as, as time's gone on and we've seen more and more of these, these false accusations, these events and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I would, it wouldn't surprise me to know that at this point, Michelle Fields has convinced herself, you know, that she was ritually sacrificed to Satan at a Trump rally, you know, uh, you know, and, uh, that her arm was ripped. You know, I got in a little bit of heat on Twitter because I said something about, you know, isn't it terrible that her arm was ripped off and she was beaten to death with it. And, uh, you, you know, you're not supposed to joke about those things, but the, but, but how can you not joke about them when, when the, these absurd things were, you know, somebody walks by a person, she's, she's in the vicinity of a presidential candidate who's being protected by the Secret Service. She, like, walks up to him and tries to grab him, and somebody might hustle her out of the way. I, I, that's you know, their job. That's, that's, you know, I mean, I mean these, days, you know, these days, you're lucky they don't shoot you. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's, but the point is, is that... Um, the whole thing was clearly a um, somebody, a, a, a reporter getting the chance to make themselves the story. And especially when she's got a book coming out in a month, you know, the, the, the temptation to take advantage of that, I'm sure is, uh, is very great. And so, you know, but, but the Breitbart people should have known better. You know, someone at Breitbart really let her down and they let the organization down and they let all those people who leap to her defense down because at some point they should have said, you know, Michelle, you need to come in. We need to talk about this and we need to set this straight so that it doesn't become this absolute circus that has now cost, you know, several people their jobs. It's cost Breitbart a lot of credibility, um, it, which and, and for something that was totally unnecessary. Has, um, you know, I, I did, I watched the video that came out where her express, I mean, she, her expression doesn't change. I mean, either she's in a Zen state of painlessness where she could get like a root canal with no uh, narcotics, but her expression doesn't seem to change as the person brushes past her. Now, since this video has come out, and also since the other angle has come out where it seems pretty clear that uh, it was not uh, Corey who, who grabbed at her or who pushed her back. Has there been any kind of, uh, whoops, you know, sorry, we, we kind of jumped to conclusions here. We should have waited for the evidence to come in. Uh, has there been, or has it just become an untopic? Has it vanished? I mean, how, how does that work? Well, the way that it usually works is that, um, you know, in, in the book that, I, that you mentioned earlier, um, SJW is Always Lie, the, the second law of SJW is SJW is Always Double Down. Now, these people at, at Breitbart and stuff, they're obviously not social justice warriors, but there are still some similarities of behavior, and it's very clear that 
um, the Ben Shapiro's and some of the other people and Fields herself have just mindlessly doubled down. I mean, that's why that's what she even said. I only filed criminal charges because everyone said they didn't believe me. Well, you know, that's literally the definition of doubling down. And of course, you know, they're not they're probably not even going to bother investigating it because the police know police know better than you or I how many false accusations there are. I can't, you know, I can't imagine, and I think this is tough for, for men to imagine, but I can't imagine living in a world where, you know, if you're a reporter and you're, you know, trying to rush a, a candidate who has said he's, you know, he's done, he's not taking, you're, you're kind of playing outside the, the, you're drawing outside the lines because the candidate said done to the Q&A, you're kind of rushing at him to get a question. Um, there is a little bit of rough and tumble in these kinds of rallies. And I can certainly see how you might get pushed back. And it seems like, kind of frail, you know, even if it did happen that you got really pushed back and something like, isn't that sort of just part of the game? It's sort of like being in football and complaining about an owie. So that part of it seems a little bit Victorian to me. And the second thing is, I can't imagine that if I said, oh, I was pushed at a rally, that there'd be this stuka screaming sound of incoming white knights to just come and defend me and, and attack. Like, I don't have this magic power to wave this boob dust and just have people come and protect me and defend me and, and battle to the death anyone who impugns my honor. Like I just, I don't have that power. And I also don't have the power to live consequence-free insofar as if I filed a false re- police report, I'm not saying it is false, you know, suspend judgment or whatever. It turns, if it turns out, that she filed a false police report. I can't imagine living consequence-free like that, but, you know, with the social justice warrior stuff or with some of the lefty stuff or with, you know, maybe attractive women stuff, I just, I can't imagine all of that. Like, people just rushing to my defense, and then no matter what I said and did, there would never be any consequences. Uh, That's a weird world for me to live in, even in my imagination. Well, we don't live in that world. I mean, you know, when I was in high school, I dated a girl who drove the same kind of car I did. And it was a a white sports car. And uh, she used to come over and and make it in an amount of time that made it very clear that she was driving on average around 100 miles an hour. And so, and I was, I got three tickets that year. And so, and I I didn't speed anywhere near that much or that often. And and finally, one day I said, you know, how do you never get any tickets? I mean, you don't even have a, a, a radar detector. And she said, oh, um, every, every time uh, I get pulled over, I just cry. You know, if she'd been pulled over something like 20 times in, the, in that previous year, not a single ticket. And so, you know, I find it very difficult to fault attractive women for using the advantages that, that we men hand them. You know, every single one of those cops could have handed her and could have and should have and le- was legally obliged to hand her a ticket. But, you know, the, the more attractive the woman, the less likely it is that uh, any man, you or me included, <laughs> are going to hold her accountable. Now, you know, you and I don't, you know, you and I don't care. We're, we're old. We don't, you know, we're, we're not, we're not trying to impress anybody at this point in time. You know, there's something to be said um, for getting older and just not giving a damn anymore. Um, but uh, <laughs> as Michael knows, you know, we were talking right before this started and, and it's much later over here in Europe, of course. And so he said, uh, I said, is this audio? He said, oh no, it's video. I said, well, I better put some clothes on there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, you know, 
I could have gone either way on that, you know. I mean, to be honest, you know, all right, let's just start. You are a famous libertarian after all. But um, but but the point is, is that it's normal. You know, the 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 white knighting behavior, the the instinct is normal. But these are journalists and these are reporters and these are people who should know better. You know, they should know that. you know, once it becomes clear that everything is not necessarily on the up and up and that sort of thing, you know, maybe you don't start a civil war in your organization um, just to defend her honor. Um, but, you know, you also have to keep in mind, though, that there's something else at work, which is, you know, these are people who are virtue signaling their opposition to the Trump campaign. Right. And so, um, you know, Fields and Shapiro in particular, um, and, and keep in mind, uh, you know, I've been familiar with Ben Shapiro since we were writing at WorldNet Daily together, you know, back, going back to like 2001 or something like that. You know, he, he started out as like a, a boy wonder, um, you know, and he was basically just parroting his father's Republican talking points at the time. And, uh, you know, so you're dealing with people who are first and foremost very concerned with making their careers in the mainstream media. And, you know, they don't have um, a lot of ideological principles. You know, they, they, they need to sell the fact that they have some ideological principles in order to make it in the conservative media, but where they really want to make it is in the mainstream media. And so, you know, the chance to do the virtue signaling and, you know, move over to the blaze or move over to Fox or whatever, you know, that's going to take a priority there. And you need to keep that aspect of the, the story in mind as well. Well, and of course, the degree to which you can feed the mainstream media's dislike of Donald Trump and his campaign is the degree to which you aren't going to be elevated and put front and center because it's a narrative, you know, campaign manager hurls young woman to the ground. You know, it's like, wow, that's quite a powerful narrative if you don't particularly like that campaign you know the fact that bill clinton has been credibly accused of rape on multiple occasions apparently has escaped the mainstream media's attention but a made-up story about some physical altercation with a young attractive reporter uh that's so i think that that aspect as well i mean if it had been almost any other candidate in almost any other situation it wouldn't have had that kind of vesuvius eruption that it had oh without question or if it had just been some you know fat 55 year old stringer uh from the ap we wouldn't have heard, we would never have heard about it in the first place. So, you know, I mean, the thing is manufactured. What's going to be interesting is how they, you know, they'll do what they always do. And as soon as it just, as soon as they realize that they're just not making any hay out of it, then it's all going to be vanished. We'll never hear about it again. And, you know, the only time it'll ever come up is, is when someone like you or me makes fun of them. um, When we, when we run across them on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and of course, uh, after a certain amount of time has passed, uh, the, the, these um, kind of narratives, what happens is, this is more on the social justice warrior side, after a certain amount has t- of time has passed, like when it's just happened, people still remember that, uh, you know, the, 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 the incongru- incongruities in the narrative and so on. After a certain amount of time has passed, they'll say, oh, that old story was discredited by X, Y, and Z, and it turned, you know, we turned out to be right. And, you know, how many, who many, pe- how many people want to go and circle back and really dig all that stuff up? So they sort of li- let it lie fallow for a certain amount of time, and then they say that they were totally right all along and just keep moving. Exactly. It's, very, it's actually very frustrating when you're, you're dealing with, um, you know, 
uh, folks on the blog and that sort of thing. And, and I'm not talking about the trolls. I'm talking about you know the the misinformed, well-intentioned people who will tell you quite in a, in a perfectly straightforward manner that uh, you know the bell curve was was totally rebutted. Totally discredited, totally rebutted. I can't believe anybody who's not medieval even still imagined that there was anything to what uh, Ernst and Murray had to say. And every single time you go and look up these you know, conclusive rebuttals and stuff, it's one person you know, expressing personal incredulity about something. There's nothing, it's, you know, I mean, to even call it a rebuttal, let alone a refutation, even a critique would be too much. You know? and, and yet that's what, but, but you, know, you have to understand that is a part of the way that people who speak rhetoric uh, talk. You know, the, there is no actual information content in rhetoric. It's all about the emotional content. And so, you know, and that's why they're so convincing superficially. You know, that's why people like you and I instinctively take them seriously is because they'll come in and they'll say, um, you know, the, the, the story that uh, Corey Lewandowski, uh, you know, didn't push her down has been discredited completely. You know, and, and because you or, or I would only say that if, if that was actually the case or if we actually really believe that to be the case. But that's the thing. They do believe it to be the case emotionally because they want it to be the case. And so, and so it, it, it's very hard for people who think and speak in terms of dialectic, using the Aristotelian sense, not the Marxian sense. It's very difficult. You have to train yourself to hear the, the, the way that the rhetorical speakers speak and, and sort of translate. You know, it, um, you know I, I, I speak Italian. But sometimes when, and, and I speak German, but sometimes if, if I'm not thinking, the wrong language will come out. And so uh, it's the same way with rhetoric and dialectic. You sort of need to like prepare your mind for it in, just in order to follow the illogic that will come out. Because they don't, you know, they will speak a contradiction and not see it as a contradiction because the two oppositional facts are both emotionally in line with each other. And I think I think that's right. And, and for me, the way that I try and get myself into this mindset, if I'm if I have to analyze it, is I sort of say to myself, okay, what if all I wanted to do was give the appearance of victory in the moment? I didn't care about the the the, the blowback or the fallback or any long term. Just in the moment, what would I do if I wanted to give like to quote win in the moment? Like I I watched this um you know there's this argument that. Somehow the, the the Donald Trump supporters are seething with homicidal rage, you know, as it pitchforks and and torches and all hunting the ogres of their own imaginations and so on. And so people say, well, if there's any kind of ever any kind of violence, oh, uh, you know, Donald Trump is responsible for the violence. He's the guy at the top, and so on. And it's a ridiculous argument, but uh, it was um, uh, Bernie Sanders made this case, you know, oh, you know, it comes from the top, and you know, Donald Trump is inciting violence, and he's responsible for what his followers do. In the exact same interview, the, the interviewer said to Bernie Sanders, well, uh, you know, it was a lot of your supporters who ended up shutting down the Trump rally uh, in Chicago. So what do you say about that? He said, well, you know, there's millions of people who vote for me. If I if I was responsible for everything they did, I'd have a pretty, pretty tough life. And it's like, you know, like five minutes, like not separates these two positions. And it doesn't matter. It does no. because it's just about what can you say in the moment to give the appearance of victory and move on? 
Exactly. And, and the, thing, the thing that's frightening is that Sanders probably doesn't even realize that he contradicted himself. And even worse, because his supporters are vastly disproportionately made up of rhetoricals, as, as I think of them, um, they, will not, they will not even notice. And, and if, you, if you draw their attention to it, you know, it will, it will basically uh, put them into a state of discombobulation that they can only resolve by running away from it or, or denying it. <laughs> It's different because I like him. So, yeah, <laughs> these two situations. I don't like Donald Trump, so that's bad. But I do like Bernie Sanders, so the exact same thing is good. It's just this. It's a toddler range at the moment emotional preference. Yeah, and and you know what you are doing when you said that you think about how you understand it by thinking in terms of how I would win in the moment. You know what you're doing is you're literally putting your mind in a state so that you can understand the rhetoric and. When you get really good at it, you can actually start to speak to them in their language, not necessarily in the, in the contradictory sense, but in the sense of specifically targeting their emotions. And, and, and the way that you can do that is, is what I call the third law, which is SJWs always project. One thing that I've noticed is that when I'm getting attacked by an SJW, they almost always accuse me of something that I later find out they are susceptible to. And so that's why they're um, constantly accusing the Trump supporters of being angry because they themselves are very angry. You know, th that's why they um, constantly accuse uh, uh, um, people like me of being uh, insecure about my intelligence. I mean, you know, for crying out loud, if there's one thing I'm not insecure about, it'd be that. But... Um, but they accuse me of that. And then I, what I realize in, in, is that that's, what, that's what, where their insecurities are. And so what, what is very useful to understand is that whenever you're getting attacked, anytime the attack doesn't make sense, anytime it, it just, it, you, you're like, why on earth would you say that? You know that what's going on is emotional projection on the other side, which is basically the equivalent of handing you the, the keys to their psyche. And so you, know, you can really do a fair amount of damage that way once once they hand you those um, those tools. Right. I mean, the the fascinating thing, and and we could spend quite a bit of time on this, but that way madness may lie. But um, the fascinating thing is is when you see people on the left screaming and shutting down rallies because they claim those rallies are intolerant. I mean, that's such a 1984 moment, you know, double think. I mean, how on earth could you possibly be screaming at people and shutting down their rallies because you're claiming they are intolerant? I mean, that's just insane. Of course, this is the very manifestation of intolerance is using these jackboot tactics to shut down free speech. It's the very definition of intolerance. Well, you need to keep in mind that Orwell experienced this directly from a, you know, with a group of true believers who were much more radical than the Sanders supporters. You know, he was he was over there in Spain, you know, with the with the revolutionaries, um, you know, dealing with the hardcore communists who you know were who were shooting the socialists like Sanders. And so, you know, he, I I think that uh, the reason that what he saw and wrote about still strikes such a chord with us today. And the reason that it's so predictive of 
the behavior of the left today is because his experience of it was so deep and so um, educational. And, and it made such a, obviously, scar and mark on him that, that he was able to describe it for us. And, and we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing the same uh, thought processes. We're seeing the same behaviors being exhibited that he noticed back in the 30s. Because it's, you know, people haven't changed. No, the tactics remain the same. And I always find it funny when people on the left cry out for diversity. But then if a conservative happens to apply to to do any writing for one of their, you know, blogs or the New York Times or whatever, they will never let that person in. You know, it's like, unless we have 100% leftists here, it's just terrible. But then we're going to go out and say we want diversity of thought and opinion while relentlessly hiring basically the mirror over and over again. I got, uh, I had an opportunity Back in the early 90s, um, you know, I started out doing video game reviews, and uh, I was actually the sixth columnist ever nationally syndicated from that newspaper, the St. Paul Pioneer Press, in their 113-year history. You know, so this was, you would think, a fairly big deal, right? Um, and, and they were you know, kind of proud of it, but they, you know, it was video games, so they didn't really get it. Um, but what was interesting was that the, the one conservative on the um, on the editorial page uh, retired, and so I thought, hey, you know, I'm young, but I've got some ideas about politics and that sort of thing. I'm, you know, I'm one of the only national syndicate nationally syndicated columnists at the paper. Surely they'll be interested in this, you know. And I'm even a libertarian, which is kind of cool and that sort of thing. So. <laughs> I wrote a couple of uh, sample columns and, and handed them to the editor-in-chief. And I stopped by a few days later and I said, hey, you know, what, what do you think? Um, you know, do I have a shot at this? And he said, um, I want to be honest with you. We love having you writing video game reviews and, and it's fantastic. Um, and the columns that you gave, gave me were really good, but there's not a chance in hell you will ever appear on this editorial page. Um, you're way too far out there. You know, because and what was so way too far out there was I had opposed the idea of public funding for a stadium. <laughs> that, that was, I mean, that was the great unmentionable, you know. I mean, obviously, stadiums should be funded by the public, you know, for these billionaires. Um, so anyhow, which, of course, you know, and again, there we are with the contradiction. All of these editors were staunch, staunch you know, left liberals. I mean, we're talking Minnesota, so we're talking about practically socialists. And, um, you know, they don't, they don't even have Democrats. They have Dem the Democrat Farmer Labor Party. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, but, you know, and here they are, you know, absolutely 100% solid on we must spend hundreds of millions of dollars on behalf of the billionaires. You know, that's not usually what you think of as being a hardcore leftist working party position, but... You know. yeah, it's funny how people can uh, justify the transfer of tax money to people who buy a lot of advertisements in the media that, uh, <laughs> that you know, just drag someone's dollars and by God, most times their ideology will just follow like a, like a dog after a quail. Right. Now, um, the, other, I mean, the other thing, too, is when, when people say, like, they're screaming the, and, and throwing rocks. And what's there? Some woman punched a horse? Like, and they say that the Trump supporters are full of hate. And they say this with these, like, twisted golem after the ring masks of hatred. These people are so full of hate. And it's like, 
do you not like is there no observing ego like this this eye that pops out and looks at yourself and says i don't think that my words and my actions are actually jiving together too well and i think the observing ego as a sort of psychological concept is a higher order of intelligence can you look at yourself and evaluate what you're doing relative to what you're saying and they're just like that whole circuitry you know is just taken out of them at birth or something like that like literally can't see that well i don't understand the cause i mean there's a lot of different theories and that sort of thing but this is not a new uh this is not new information you know when when you go back to aristotle you know we're talking 2400 years and he says it was very useful to me when i was reading rhetoric the second time because the first time frankly i think it, I, it just all washed over me but the second time I was reading it, it really struck home because he talked about how there are people who uh, no information can inform or educate. They, they literally cannot learn from information. Um, their minds can only be changed through emotional manipulation. And of course, that's what the book Rhetoric is about. He's basically teaching you how to manip manipulate them. You know, and if you think about it, he was Alexander the Great's tutor, so obviously these lessons work pretty well. Um, but you know, the, the relevant part is that there's nothing that can be done. You cannot convince them. You know, that, that it doesn't matter that they're beating up horses. You're the angry, hateful, violent one. You, you know, I mean, how if you think about it. How whacked out do you have to be? How completely intoxicated by rage do you have to be to punch a horse? You know, I mean, how on what planet does, does do you suddenly think, you know what I need to do? I need to punch that horse. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, it, but but that's because, like I said, there's no information content to their rhetoric. You know, they can say, I mean, I've had a. It, you know, you know about my um, differences of opinion with pretty much the entire science fiction community. And uh, at one point, um, a woman who is massively overweight um, actually came out and said something about how she doubted that I had ever um, been in contact with a woman before. And I'm thinking, okay, have you ever seen a 1980s movie, you know, my friends and I used to be the bad guys from the 80s movie. And, and then I signed a record contract, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make any sense because, you know, in this, you know, obese woman's mind, um, not for a man to not have contact with a woman makes him inferior. And all she was concerned about was trying to make me feel bad. The, the, the fact that it was completely absurd, the fact that it didn't even make any sense, it was totally irrelevant because, um, you know, one thing we, we, we learned about in Gamergate when the media was, you know, virulently attacking uh, gamers and, you know, declaring gamers dead and all this sort of thing, um, everything that they said was clearly specifically designed to try to trigger you know, negative emotions, feel bads, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's their game. You know, when they're talking about, when they're talking about the Trump supporters being angry, that's not only projection, but that is their way of trying to 
denigrate and and make the Trump supporters you know feel bad because um, when you're dealing with that mentality, feeling bad is how they divide and conquer. You know, they they get people to leave the group because they're being you know it's basically like a junior high game. You know the the, the worse that you can make them feel, then the more likely it is that they will abandon their little group. Well, this this is his oldest. It's the oldest game in the book, and and generally it was reserved for religion in the past. And the game goes something like this: You are a bad person, but if you give me money, I will forgive you for a short period of time. And then you're a bad person. If you give me money, I will forgive you. It's, it's the Catholic original sin argument, and now the new original sin is, you know, white privilege or racism, misogyny, sexism. I'm going to apply these pejorative labels to you, but if you cough up money and resources and power to me, I will wave my wand and forgive you for a certain amount of time. Uh, and basically, it's um, it's a moral shakedown. And uh, this um, the ability to do this has been. Uh, well-developed, I think, throughout human history because good people are susceptible to feeling bad. You know, it's funny because they insult people with terms that if those people were actually those terms, they wouldn't care. Like a genuine racist is like, hell yeah, <laughs> thank you, the, I am a racist, and, and, and here's why, and whatever, right? I mean, they, they'd be like, yeah, bring it on. You know, somebody, I don't know, a genuine misogynist or whatever. I mean, if they can ever find someone who actually has white privilege, maybe they can <laughs> ask that as well. But somebody who actually is not a racist will be hurt and upset by being called a racist. So it's one of these things that um, it only applies to people that it doesn't, it only works with people that doesn't actually apply to you know go to some kkk grand wizard and say you're some kind of racist and he's like what gave it away is that the chef cat that goes to a cone i mean what you know is the fact that we're having a barbecue looking like uh, we just got a whole bunch of sheets blown on us from a line and so this this old game which is we're just going to apply negative pejoratives to you sorry that's a bit redundant we're going to apply pejoratives to you until you cough up resources money and power that is a very well-honed instinct uh, among certain sections of the human population. It's not a bad survival strategy because, you know, it sure beats having to go out and hoe the back 40. Well, I, I think that it goes beyond that, though, because, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying up to a point. I wouldn't say that it's a religious thing. I would say that it's a priestly thing if you, you know, get the... Co if, yeah, no, that's a fair point. Yeah. Um, but but the um, it, it goes beyond that in that... It is also a, a simple measure of social dominance. You know, when, when you see teen girls doing it, they're not trying to get the other side to cough up any, any money or anything. They're trying to assert their own dominance within their group. And what they're, trying to, what they're also trying to do is, is when they sense a danger to their group. Like, for example, you get attacked a lot. I get attacked a lot. Why? No, I've never noticed that, but um, perhaps it's out there. I've... Uh... I have, I have no experience of that, but but if you've seen it, I'll take your word for it. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> but you know, the reason that you or I get attacked, whereas you know, choose any two of our random supporters don't get attacked one one hundredth as much, is because we are perceived as posing the greater threat. And so, in, in addition to the um, in, in in addition to the reward side that you're talking about, there's also what you might call a risk mitigation side which is um, there's a threat over there. We need to try to defuse it. And so, you know, because they have limited tools, they just, 
you know, they have a hammer. So every tool must be, every problem must be a nail. And so that's why they're, you know, they'll, um, they'll try to attack you. They will literally, um, the, the funniest example of it that I, I saw recently was last year when the whole sad puppies, rabid puppies thing was exploding all over the you know international media everywhere from New Zealand to NPR. Um, some woman in the science fiction community suggested that the best way to end the whole thing was to not talk about uh, sad puppies because that would deprive me of an audience. And you know, she said on her blog, she gets as many as 600 people a month. And, you know, that all those people wouldn't hear about me or the sad puppies um, if, if she didn't say anything. But, you know, it was ridiculous. I mean, the, I don't remember exactly what my traffic was then, but it was, you know, well over a million uh, a month at the time. And I, I remember thinking, you know, do you even look? I mean, I had a, a, a site meter right on the, on the blog. It's like, did, did you not even look at that? But that was before I realized that what she was just, what she was trying to do is she was trying to minimize me in her mind. And so, um, and these people have no um, rational breaks. So that they're trying to, they're trying to work out solutions to stop the pain that, that, that the cognitive dissonance causes them, you know, because their positions are fundamentally in opposition to reality. They have to have very, well-developed coping mechanisms to, you know, square the circle all the time. I mean, I mean, you, you know, I'm sure you've, you've had an experience where you were trying to kind of, you know, you believe something and then someone brought up something that proved that your belief was wrong. You didn't, it, you didn't immediately go, Oh, I've changed my mind. You know, it, it takes you a while to fully accept it. You know, for, for me, um, you know, I was raised on Milton Friedman. You know, my, 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 I mean, in retrospect, it was kind of insane. I was, I was looking at some of the books my dad had me reading when I was in junior high and, you know, they were, had like advanced mathematics in them, you know, but, um, and frankly, I didn't understand that part of it at all, but. Trust me, just, if you go for the audiobooks, they'll skip over the math. That's just my particular uh, suggestion, but go ahead. Good idea. Well, but the, the point is that I was raised a free trader, you know, I mean, to me, to question free trade would was right up there with questioning um, the existence of God or the moral superiority of the Minnesota Vikings. You know, these were just things that I fundamentally, they were fundamental axioms of my life. And, and so, you know, the first time that, that I started running into some logical questions on the issue, you know, I, I kind of talked. I just sort of pushed them away. I didn't really think about them until I was forced to finally confront them because of some of the stuff I read with Ian Fletcher, because of some of the stuff from Schumpeter. And then I finally sat down and said, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to go through this, you know, A to Z, reach a uh, conclusion. And then I reached a conclusion that was completely contradictory to my original beliefs. But that was a painful process and it took time. And so, um, my one, just by the by, my one is uh, bio, human biodiversity and multiculturalism. That was my uh, generally accepted religion until facts just kept beating me down. <laughs> I finally had to give up the ghost. But sorry, go ahead. No, I, I understand. I mean, I, I ran uh, NCAA Division One track, you know, and I was not the blackest guy on the track team in the 100, 200 meter sprint group, you know. Um, 
and so for me, the, the whole HBD thing was very difficult to accept too, because I was always very proud of, you know, not being racist and not thinking racist thoughts and that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, you can understand, I mean, it's possible to have a degree of sympathy for the fact that these are people who have no capacity, no intellectual courage. And so they cannot face the truth. They cannot face reality. And so they have these, these very highly developed coping mechanisms for allowing them to function day to day. Now, a lot of them don't function very well. And, and I suspect that might be connected. But, um, and, and it also doesn't excuse their horrific behavior with regards to people who actually are in harmony with reality. But, um, you, you know, it's, it's, it's something that you have to be aware of when you're dealing with them because, you know, those coping mechanisms are things that they have been refining all their lives. And so it's, it's, it's totally subconscious for them at this point in time. Now, let's um, jump back to a topic that you brought up a couple of minutes ago. The Gamergate. And I've never done a show on Gamergate. I've I've read it. I've tried to wrap my head around it. Let me give you my 20 seconds on Gamergate and just tell me, you know, where where I am and in relation to what may it what it may actually be. So my understanding was that uh, it sort of started out of corruption in the gaming review industry, right? That there was this woman who created this uh, Depression Quest game that got great reviews. It turns out that there was not a lot of objectivity in the reviewers. And it kind of started out like, okay, let's clean up this uh, mess. Let's, you know, try and get, um, you know, if people are sleeping together, if there's a conflict of interest, we kind of want that up front and center because, you know, we rely on this uh, to spend our hard earned money on games. And the backlash for that, I'm not sure about how this transition actually occurred, but the backlash to that seemed to be that it invited a massive tsunami of feminist nagging into the gaming community. Now, gaming, of course, is is a lot of I mean, I'm a gamer too, but it's kind of for a lot of younger guys in particular, it's like, okay, I don't have really, I've been cast out of the workforce. Uh, it's too dangerous to date. Uh, you know, I can't get out of my mom's basement. I got a huge amount of student debt, but here at least is a place where I have my uh, domain. And I think what happened was when that domain, the, the sort of corrosive, invasive third world nagging feminism stuff came crashing into that domain, it seemed like there was nowhere left to retreat for these guys. Okay, if you take away my pleasure in video gaming, I have nothing left. I have no wife. I have no family. I have no career. I'm, I'm characterizing gamers, of course, a bit, bit harshly. But it was interesting to me that that's where the remnants of Western masculinity planted their flag. And by God, they took their stand. Like there was just no, I can't go further down than the basement. So I'm going to have to make, I'm cornered and I'm going to have to take my stand here. Is that anywhere close to, to what actually happened? Uh, it, it's reasonably close. I mean, I, I think your interpretation, <laughs> I think your interpretation of gamers is, is a little bit overwrought simply because, um, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong gamer myself. I mean, I'm a professional game developer. Um, I teach development. I have seven. Oh, sorry, games. just for the just sorry, just for the, just because you've now mentioned like your sixth or seventh profession. I'm going to assume that all the books behind you—that's just your resume, right? Like you just you send it out in in volumes with like twelve pack mules. Uh, I just wanted to clarify that for the audience. But please go ahead. Yeah, I um I I have a focus problem, <laughs> quite clearly. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I mean the, the funny thing is about the only two things that I've done consistently are. 
uh, develop games and uh, the blog. You know, everything else I get bored with after about two years. But, it's okay. Um, Vinci did too, and that's why we have some great works. So, but, but um, you know, so uh, so for me, uh, and for most uh, people that call themselves gamers, um, I mean, gamer does not mean someone who plays games. Yeah, that's one thing that people were very. The media was very confused with. You know, they're saying, "Well, all these all these girls are playing." You know. Kim Kardashian and Candy Crush Saga, they're gamers too. And, so, and, and of course, the whole gaming community was just looking at them like, no, they're not. Because you know, a gamer is actually a contraction of war gamer. It doesn't mean somebody who plays hopscotch. It doesn't mean somebody who plays tic-tac-toe. It doesn't mean somebody, you know, we don't call football players gamers. Hmm. Even though they professionally play a game. And so gamer originally came from war gamer. And there's a tremendous amount now, sorry, of... Now, uh, sorry, Wargamer, is, uh, is that like the Warhammer, the tabletop, uh, or is that more s still in the computer area? Uh, no, it's prior to either. It's the board and counter war games. You know, for example, like if you look at, if you look at my shelf, there's a hole in the, in the sort of like right behind there. Those are actually all um, Wargaming binders full of rules. You know, the rules are like this thick. And so... Um, and this, sorry, this paper and pencil stuff and dice. No, that's that's role playing gaming. Uh, war yeah. gaming is is boards and counters. So you have like you, you might have the Battle of Borodino. Um, the game that I like to play a lot uh, is Advanced Squad Leader, which is a World War II simulation, small unit tactics. Um, so, that, so that's where it started, and then um, you know then it moved into computers, and so the early computer games were mostly war games. And then you got the arcades and that sort of thing. So, so there's this whole identity and culture that grew up from that original small wargaming culture. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm, I'm going to go perhaps not out on too shaky a limb. And I'm going to guess that the number of women playing Candy Crush probably a little bit higher than the number of people in this number of women in this community that you're talking about. It's a I, sausage fest. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Um, in... 20, 30, whatever it is, years of playing advanced squad leader, I have yet to meet a single woman who... Zero. Yeah, I got it. I got it. Okay. I, I, I uh, you know, my wife finds it vastly amusing. She said um, she was talking kind of, or commiserating with my best friend and, uh, and then her, her, and then my best friend's wife said, you know, I think it's awesome that our husbands are wargamers. She's like, there is not a chance they will ever meet another woman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when they're out playing games, they're safe. But, Unless um, you're playing the war game that involves naked, oiled Spartan wrestling, you're probably pretty safe for not having an affair. Okay, got it. Exactly. So anyhow, the so the the it's it's a way of life is is the thing you know, um, and and that's it's it's an it's literally an identity um, for for many men. You know, if 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 so, there was um a really a really nice thing that. Um, the president of Nintendo, who, who recently died, said, um, and it was going around a lot, he said, um, uh, it was something to the effect of, um, in, my, in my occupation, I'm a corporate executive. Um, in my profession, I'm a, a, a game developer, but in my heart, I'm a gamer. And so, you know, what, what he was saying, it was very clearly understood by all the gamers that, you know, I may be the president of the largest, you know, one of the largest, most important game companies in the world, um, 
I may be rich and famous. I may do this, but in my heart, I'm exactly like you, you know, and, and, and people, it, people, uh, really responded emotionally to that. That that was because they could identify with that. And so what happened with Gamergate was actually very similar to the Michelle Fields incident. Um, you know, the, she, there's some doubt, there's some question about, you know, who, who was sleeping with whom and exactly when. Um, it doesn't really matter. Um, that's just simply how it came out. But, but what really set things off was you know, because initially the whole depression quest, uh, I mean, depression quest was incredibly crude. People who, who haven't really looked at the story would not believe that something like that could have gotten this whole thing off because it wasn't even really a game. It was basically like a choose your own adventure book. There's a new technology, a new little engine that allows you to basically create uh, choose your own adventure books with pictures and music. Um, and so she had put this together like anyone could. You didn't need to program anything. Um, and it, and then, you know, it got all these reviews and, and, and stuff. And so people were people weren't really um, confused about the reviews being good. They were mostly confused about the fact that it had been reviewed at all. <laughs> you know, the, I mean, that's one thing that the media didn't didn't pay any attention to. It's not that I mean, there's no game like that gets reviews. There are much bigger, more professional, uh, professionally produced games that never get one tenth the amount of reviews that this game did, and so, so that was the first sort of the, the first sort of um, thing that triggered my antenna. Like, and, and wasn't that partly because it's like uh, this is a, a young woman, and is it, there's the sense that we're getting these splintering of standards that you know very high standards for the male developers, and then there's a woman who's not even a coder who's developed something using someone else's engine. Was there a sense that we're getting this sort of split in standards that can drive a lot of people kind of crazy between the genders? No, it wasn't even that because there have been women, highly respected women in the industry for decades. I mean, before, well, but not not producing crap games, right? No, producing really good games. I mean, I mean, right. but, but like I said, the people who were actually in the industry were totally confused, because like, oh, she's a, so what if she's a woman? You know, Roberta Williams is a woman. Jade Raymond's a woman. But, you know, uh, Brenda Laurel's a woman. These were all women doing real games. You know, so why on earth are you talking about this like non-game? essentially non-game by this nobody who isn't even in the industry. You know, I mean, she was, she was somebody uh, like, you know, like, I mean, kind of like Anita Sarkeesian, somebody who was not in the industry at all. I mean, like kind of maybe on the periphery at most, like, you know, like any other gamer who wants to get into the industry one day. And so suddenly, you know, there's reviews and here and there and whatever. And so that was what, what triggered my attention, you know, I was paying attention to it and I'd written about it before it was called Gamergate because, you know, for the same reason that the few people who paid attention to it at the same time were, were like, why is anyone paying any attention to any of this? You know, and, and then what really caused it to take off, though, was the fact that she has some sort of um, relationship with the, the, the guy behind, um, she has some sort of relationship with uh, Nick Denton. Um, like, I don't know if it's like her, her family is somehow connected in a way or something, but there, there's, there's definitely some connection between 
Zoe Quinn and some of the people in the the circles around Kotaku and um, and so forth. And so they basically leaped in and used the full power of the media to try to change the story, to change the narrative, because the stories that were coming out, you know, gamers being gamers, they were figuring out all kinds of stuff about about her. And, you know, she'd done everything from pose naked to, you know, um, have relationships with a number of guys at the same time. And so all this stuff was coming out. And so the my impression, and it's only an impression, is that there was a concerted attempt to bury the the actual story with a false narrative. And then... Um, well, but hang on, hang on. So, but, but what's the actual story around non-objectivity or potential corruption in video game reviews? No, not, not really at that point. I mean, at that point, it was, okay. it, it was all basically like people were trying to figure out why the hell anyone was paying attention to this person. And so, and, and what, re- what really set things off, now this is what really set things off, is 4chan was kind of a, a center for a lot of the, um, a lot of the gamers. Uh, you know, it was very big among them. But the guy who, um, who just got hired by, um, who did, I think Google just hired him actually, um, Moot was his name. And he, for some reason, he basically lined up with the Kotakus against the gamers. And the, they, they called it the, it was like a massacre of the moderators. They basically got rid of all the moderators who were friendly to the gamers and then brought in these new people who had no history um, and then came up with all these sort of SJW type rules for posting and how you couldn't talk about Zoe Quinn. That's how the name Literally Who got started because you couldn't talk about her or you'd get in trouble. So you had to refer to, you know, by a different name. And was this um, dysfunctional women white knighting? Is that, you said that there were similarities to the Michelle Fields situation. Is that the sort of white knight circle and protect the eggs kind of stuff? I don't think it was just white knighting. I think that there were some sort of, um, I think there were some sort of personal connections involved um, yeah. at, at, at fairly high levels in the media. Because um, then there was a coordinated, in, I read about this in SJWs Always Lie in the chapter about Gamergate. On, in the course of like two days, something like 17 articles came out that were all talking about how gamers are dead. You know, which, if you think about it, is an insanely stupid thing for the gaming media <laughs> to, to say. But and what happened was it was uncovered by, um, by someone uh, who's in the media, who has to remain nameless, but uh, he, got the, uh, he got access to the list. It was, do you remember Journalist? That uh, that group of left wing uh, journalists. Oh, yeah. Well, there was a, they called it Game Journal Pros. It was the same thing, and so they had coordinated that um, attack on gamers in order to, like I said, I I think it was in order to you know sort of change the narrative, and that's what when everything blew up because you know in addition to 4chan turning on them, then suddenly the gaming press is is attacking them. And so, um, and then, of course, the gamers struck back. And then, because the, because the SJWs always double down, instead of going, you know, why are we attacking our readers? They tried. To, they concocted a bunch of lies and amped it up to the next level, so that the mainstream media, because remember, we're, this is going back to what we were talking about before. 
they're just trying to make the gamers feel bad and quit. But the gamers were never going to quit because they knew it was all bullshit. And so, um, so then, I mean, and then it got, I mean, the, the, the pinnacle of the absurdity, of course, was when uh, they filmed that, um, that television show. And, and Gamergate was the bad guy, and they had an Anita Sarkeesian stand-in. Because Sarkeesian was already doing her con artist thing. But the minute that Gamergate got going, she saw the chance to jump in and take advantage of it. And so that's why she got involved. And then, of course, you have uh, Brianna Wu, the, the uh, transgender gentleman who um, was, uh, you, you know, claiming that he was driven from his home and all this kind of stuff. And, I mean, the whole... All that. But sorry, you, you were saying Anita Sarkeesian was doing her con job. Is that related to the um, Tropes uh, video series that she got a lot of money for, but didn't seem to produce a lot of content from? Yes, she was okay. already she was already kind of doing that stuff on the periphery, but she ended up jumping in, and and you know she and John McIntosh got that whole feminist frequency thing really amped up during Gamergate because the the mainstream media was looking for something to use against Gamergate. And so she was the useful vehicle. And, you know, Time, <clears throat> Time Magazine had, like, named her in, like, the 100 most important people. <laughs> I mean, it, the, in retrospect, you know, I, I, I think um, I think Milo and maybe and one other uh, individual from Gamergate are, are writing books on the whole thing. I mean, it is, you know, speaking as somebody who was there it, it, you know, from the beginning, I wasn't, I wasn't intimately involved in like Kotaku in action or anything. Um, but I, I did do my share of sending emails and that sort of thing. Um, but it was absolutely and utterly insane. I mean, every single step of the way, it was as ludicrous or more ludicrous than the Mich Michelle Fields situation. You know, um, I mean, here you've got Kotaku literally attacking the people on whom their their business depends you know why would they ever do that now of course you know we've learned uh since then that um that uh you know with the hulk hogan thing gawker maybe doesn't have make the best <laughs> business oh so this is this nick denton is the guy who ended up in charge of gawker is that right yeah he's he's the guy who's been running it for for years and so you know we uh, with Gamergate, we targeted their advertisers, and we actually managed to cost them over a million dollars in advertising. Um, you know, just by every day, um, you know, there people were sending emails, creating memes on Twitter. Um, you know, it was it was a whole uh, ad hoc campaign, totally decentralized. As a libertarian, you'd approve of it. It was totally decentralized. Um, nobody in charge. Um, you know, the the. It was always kind of funny because uh, the media would talk to somebody and they would say, well, um, well, I'm the leader of Gamergate. And so the media would immediately start talking to them and they didn't realize. That, I'm the leader of philosophy. Okay. Right. So, I'm so, science god. Okay. So, 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 so everybody that they talked to was always the leader of Gamergate. Um, but there, there was no leader and that was intentional because um, the, the folks in Gamergate were sophisticated enough to understand that any, uh, any weed that got popped up too far was going to get its head chopped off. And so the whole thing was just, you do it yourself. You know, don't, if you got a great idea, make it happen. You know, so, so there's things like, uh, there, there are some uh, really useful uh, artifacts 
of Gamergate that are still around that are going to be very useful, like uh, deepfreeze.it, where um, you've got the, you know, all these journalists are permanently archived on the record. Um, you, you know, every time, I mean, one thing that, that um, my own supporters have learned, you know, the, the evil legion of evil, um, they've learned that, you know, you never, ever uh, publicize anything that somebody has tweeted, put on the internet, whatever, without archiving it first, because we know that they will delete it and deny it. You know, so you need to make sure if you're, if you're going to use it, you know, don't talk about it until you archive it. So I think, I think Gamergate is a, a real lesson for the right wing to, to learn and understand. And, you know, I, I published two of the, the great military strategists of our day, uh, William Lind and Martin Van Krebel. And I was actually talking to uh, Mr. Lind about it. And I said, you know, there's a lot of this stuff that reminds me of fourth generation war. And he said, oh, this, he said, Gamergate is absolutely a fourth generation war campaign. It's just not violent. And um, the, the, the aspect or the degree to which there seems to be a weakness in the male character, and you talk about this, of course, in Conservatives, um, which is that uh, men are very susceptible to fighting with other men because women want them to. Just Dis like disturbed, dysfunctional women often play this weird chess game of let's let's you and him fight. And uh, they sort of motivate guys into uh, attacking each other for eggs. Again, I don't know that the, the etymology of it is somewhat mysterious to me, but I have seen this erupt a bunch of times where, you know, a dysfunctional woman sails into a largely male environment. And next thing you know, it's, it's goddamn civil war. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we were talking about this on Alpha Game the other day because, uh, you know, I was, one thing I've been trying to figure out is why do women always seem to want to invade male spaces in which they have no real interest. And it was Dalrock, I think, who came up with the most convincing explanation. And, and he said, have you ever noticed that um, like hardcore gym bunnies, they tend to not be the prettiest women. Like, I mean, they're in great shape. They have the most attractive bodies generally, but they're not, they're, they're always like a little bit more plain. And then uh, we were talking about uh, the, the cosplayer girls, you know, the, the girls that go to the comic conventions and dress up like that sort of thing. And again, um, they, they tend to look pretty attractive in all their, their outfits and stuff. But for the most part, they're not, you, you know, they're not uh, the beauty queens, as it were. And, and what he realized and, and theorized, I mean, obviously there's no way to scientifically demonstrate this at the moment, but uh, was that that's how... Um, that's how women maximize their uh, attractiveness. Yeah, sexual market value. Yeah. Yeah, because they, they, can, they can basically increase their sexual market value by going into a male space because they don't have the competition. And so, so, and then of course, once they're in there, then their hypergamy kicks in. And so, of course, you know, a, a girl who goes and, and becomes a gamer girl and wants to play, you know, PlayStation 4 with the boys, um, she's going to want the coolest dork, you know? She's going to want the... The alpha gamer. Exactly. She wants, she want, I mean, as, as silly as alpha gamer sounds, that's what the gamer girl is going to want, just like the girl who, um, 
you know, what you'll often see at the gym, uh, you'll often see the, the gym bunny with one of the big hulking, you know, brutes, the, the, the alpha gym guys. Well, uh, sorry, I, if you were in the middle of an explanation, I don't want to, I don't oh. want to interrupt you. Okay. So, um, yeah, alpha gamer. I'm pretty alpha and I'm a gamer. So I got no problem with that. You're pretty alpha, you're a gamer. So, but okay. So that would explain why the women go in, but why do they detonate it? I, I sort of like, why do they, like, wouldn't you just go in and then, you know, made the best man, but why did they go in and just start pitting people against each other and so on? And, you know, the, the shrinking of male spaces in the modern world is, you know, you can have a female only gym, but God forbid you have a guy, a place where guys sit in deep armchairs and smoke cigars. Oh, my God, that's just horrible. You gotta blow the roof of that thing. I think that the isolation of men from men, which is when females, when women come into a space in general, um, and this is true particularly for younger men, but when women come into a space, uh, men change their behavior, just as, you know, when men go into a women's space, women change their behavior. And I think male-to-male connection is generally um, downplayed in matriarchal societies for the obvious reason that if men connect with each other and share their experiences, they can gain some strength and solidarity in the increasing hypergamous state plus lady plus gun situation that that we're all trying to sort of survive and, and turn around. So I think when men get connections with each other, uh, that's dangerous for a lot of the women who, you know, want to continue to enjoy the fruits of men's labor through the state ripping your wallet out through your balls and stuff like that. So I think that what happens is when women, again, not all women, but when when some sort of dysfunctional women see a bunch of men together, it they, the alarm bells go off that that men might get a connection with each other, might you know, like like men who are being abused by women, what do they do? They cut you off from your friends so that you can't say to your friends, she did X, Y, and Z, and your friends say, she's crazy, man. You've got to get out of there, right? So she's got to isolate you so that she can – and I think that this isolation of male spaces – I mean, this is another reason why prominent men who you know have a largely male demographic, most of the people who watch and listen to my show are male, this is a kind of male space. And therefore, it must be attacked because if men are in communication with each other, they gain strength, they gain solidarity, all the thing that the feminists wanted to do when they wanted women to talk together, which was perfectly fine, of course. So I think it's not just going in for for sexual market value increase and you know, hypergamy to get the alpha uh, a gamer. But when I think of the dysfunctional women coming into male spaces, I think it really is like a bunker buster. Well, I, I think that you're... I think you're absolutely correct, and I think that it might even run a little. Uh, I think you can take that line of thought and extend it even further because, you know, I was kind of surprised when uh, when Michael got in touch with me and said, um, "Hey, you know, uh, we'd like you to come on the show and and, and uh, talk to Stefan." Um, I was kind of surprised at how many people tweeted and emailed me, and I mean, they were like legitimately happy about this. And, and it's not something that I, yeah, I've been on a lot of radio shows and stuff before. And, and I mean, I've been even on Fox and I've never had that kind of reaction. And I was kind of wondering, what's the big deal? Like, I mean, okay. Well, they, they were all my Twitter accounts. Um, I have, <laughs> I, you can't see this. I have uh, 40,000 arms. I'm actually a Hindu deity. Not many people know that because I don't turn blue, but that, that's where that's coming from. But sorry. Sorry for my interruption. Go ahead. Well, the, but it was it was interesting. I was thinking. I wonder what what was that all about? You know, um, 
and then I, I thought I was I was writing a post on Alpha Game the other day, and it occurred to me that the we we're talking about the alt right, and one of the interesting things about the alt right is that it is extremely masculine. I'm not talking about in the MRA sense. I'm talking about if you look at the individual leaders of the various nodes, you know, there's a disproportionate number of homosexuals and there is a disproportionate number of guys like you and me who are successful with women, confident, and basically not afraid of them. You know, if you look, I mean, if you look at the behavior of um, Ben Shapiro with Michelle Fields, that is very different than the way that Milo would have behaved. He is not inclined to white knight. You know, he is, he, he is very gay. And I can say that as someone who has been out uh, until the very small hours of the morning in the Paris red light district with him. If only straight men actually got that hair. Could you imagine we'd rule the entire universe? <laughs> it's so unfair. But, um, but, you know, the thing is, you know, someone like Milo is not going to go running white knighting for, for someone like Michelle Fields. Uh, someone like you, someone like me, we're not going to do it either. We're just going to sit back. We're just gonna- Sorry to interrupt, but this is the thing. I mean, how, in what insane planet has become that when you give women full and equal moral agency, somehow you're a misogynist? Like, that's so bizarre to me. Like, I really love women. And like every group or entity or people that I love, I will not strip moral agency from them because that is an act of contempt. To portray people as victims tossed around by the manly limbs of patriarchy, you know, oh, I got pushed by a guy. Like, it's like, no, you're an adult. You're you're a moral agent. You're responsible. You're responsible to tell the truth. You're responsible to have integrity, just like I would demand of a man. And the idea that somehow it is considered negative towards women to give them full moral agency, which means innocent until proven guilty. You don't just get to say stuff and it's suddenly true. That's how you treat children. Oh, do you have an invisible friend named Bobby? Here, Bobby, here's a piece of toast for you. I mean, you, you, you indulge the irrationalities of little children, not adults. And the fact that that it's considered to be somehow anti-female to give them full moral agency and moral responsibility, just as I would a man, just goes to show how completely deranged mainstream gender relations are. Okay, that's the end of my rant. I'm going to just wipe <laughs> the spittle off my uh, off my webcam here. But it was impressive. I, I was impressed and a little alarmed. Um, <laughs> but the uh, you know the, the what you're talking about. Uh, you know, you're talking about your show being a generally male space. You know, there, there's a number of women who hang out at, at VP, Vox Populi. And they, for the most part, they tend to be very uh, INTJ. I mean, we're talking about, you know, th- there's one who's a astrophysicist. They're, you know, they're, they're not the, the uh, average sort of, they're not average women in any way, shape, or form. But one thing that was interesting that uh, several of them have told me over the years was that it was very shocking for them to come into that particular space and not get treated with any deference, any interest, um, or any uh, any warmth. You know, because honestly, I don't give a damn. You know, I, I don't care if 
if there is 100% men or if it's 85% men or, or whatever, you know, the, I, I only put the comments up there originally as a courtesy. You know, it's basically my place to just dump whatever I'm thinking about. And if people want to talk about it, great. But I don't care who, I don't care who particularly is there. And so um, some of them said it was very shocking to come in and, to, you know, to say, hi, I'm a woman. You know, and, and you know, basically there was just a big echo because nobody even said, oh, that's nice, you know. And because I, I made it very clear to everyone that I don't really care. And so therefore, you know, following my lead, nobody else does. And so, you know, that prevented the space from getting, uh, from changing at all. No, nobody is competing to get the attention of the chicks. And, and it um, invites women, it, it invites women to bring more to the table than sexual market value. And isn't that, in terms of the evolution of our species as a whole, we don't want to just bring basic biological imperatives to the table and say, look, I'm contributing. I mean, just, you know, if you don't treat women, as just bring something to the table that's going to interest people. But it's just, it's just rhetoric on their part. The whole, I mean, the whole equality thing is, is complete load of nonsense. I mean, there's not, they, they have no interest in equality whatsoever. Um, you know, the, uh, in one of the games that I'm developing, I have a, a female intern and she's great. But um, I think that she would probably be the first to say that um, not only do I not show her any special favor, I don't even show any interest whatsoever in her because, you know, I don't care. All I, she's an intern. All I want is when I, when I want something done, get it done and get it to me and get it to me on time. That's my only interest, you know, and, and you know, I'm not even on the same continent. So, you know, there, there's no, um, there's no game playing. There's no gender this or whatever, like the, the, the people like to, to say when, and, and, and that's one of the problems right now in the gaming industry. Um, there's a huge backlash that is, is presently forming among the developers, not just the gamers, because at, you know, at the recent GDC, they're inviting they're inviting the SJWs to come in and tell us that we have to have more, you know, women. We have to have more less, but yeah, yeah. You can't have you can't have too many have have a tight outfit and that kind of stuff. And and it's really outrageous. And uh, you know, if there's one thing that I know about game developers after being one for 25 years, it's that they're not at all into people telling them what to do, you know? Um, I mean, can you imagine the guys who made Carmageddon or Postal, you know, games where you can run over little old ladies with a, you know, with a walker? Do you really think that they're concerned about what some random feminist says about, you know, what they should do? Um, And what these people should do is is instead of going to, gamer spaces you know what they need to do is they need to stop picketing women's magazines for objectifying women they need to start saying hey women's magazines that is an unrealistic amount of photoshopped and airbrushed makeup face hey that's a 13 year old gymnast if i rub that cellulite cream on my ass i'm not gonna look like that trust me i've tried and that's what they need to do they need to go to women's magazines because there is no industry on earth 
or in any other dimension that objectifies and reduces women to shallow physical appearance than women's magazines in right. general. And But they don't. They go and nag men because nagging women uh, won't work. Well, yeah, I mean, what, neither the women nor the gays in the fashion industry give a damn about women complaining. And so... Um, and, and These shoes are too tight. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, put it on. <laughs> yeah, it these heels are a little impractical. Hey, you want to put your ass on a shelf? Wear these heels. There's no other way to do it. Right. But, but the, the thing is that, um, you know, I think that the fact that gamers don't give a damn was a real shock to them. Because the NFL has caved. The, all the, all the, you know, all the old gentlemen's clubs have caved, you know, because those, those men all cared about what women thought. And the truth of the matter is that neither male nor female gamers, because there are some female gamers, none of them care about this idiotic social gender jihad that the SJWs are trying to force on them. And so, and so you know, everything that they're doing is it, they're trying to do the usual thing of gaining the cultural high ground. They're using the media, using the big corporations and all that sort of thing. Um, but they're going to fail because at the end of the day, there is not a, a single person, there's not a single gamer who is even a has a scintilla of interest in playing the crap that they want to do. And so you know, the game, the, the companies that make the mistake of giving into them are going to fail. And the, the companies that refuse to are going to continue to grow. And, and you know, uh, I think there's actually a, a group of Japanese female developers, I think, that put something together, basically telling the UN to take a hike, you know, with their whole women in gaming thing. They're like, we're women, we develop games, go away. And, and so, um, you know, it, it's, it's a good thing. And I think it's something that men in other industries and with other interests need to learn from. You know, they need to look at what the gamers did in Gamergate. They need to look at the difference in the response to the social pressure that, that, uh, that we responded with because otherwise they're going to lose their spaces and they're going to lose their interests and those industries are going to crumble. Right. I'm going to give you a short performance piece. Are you ready? Go for it. All right. I'm just going to warm up my neck here. I've been working on this for 30, 35 seconds. Okay. This is my imitation of typical male-female relationships um, and where we're heading. It goes a little something like this. The woman says, I don't like that you don't care what I think. I'm sorry. I don't really care what you think. I hate you. Still don't care what you think. Oh, well, then I love you. That's, and scene, that's, you know, you can, you can put that on as a gift. But I think there's a lot to this, you know, what's called the shit test by some people, which is like, sorry, you know, don't, the, the alpha doesn't care to be no. nagged, doesn't care. And, and this is the Donald Trump phenomenon. Okay, the media is really going to hate you and the RNC is really going to hate you and the social justice warriors are really going to hate you. So you must be a smoking Arizona style media creator by now. Nope. Number one in the polls, you know, like, I don't care. And there's such a glorious liberation. It's like having your own personal imagination jetpack. I am free of gravity. I don't care. And people will love you for not caring. They'll say they'll hate you. But if you blow through that, they'll love you for it. Well, it was interesting to me today. I, I sent, you know, 
Uh, Rabbit Puppies 2016 was announced today. That's the my recommendations for this year's Hugo's Award. And uh, I sent out a press release this time because you know, last time the press leaped on us and attacked us. So I thought I'd get out in front of it and at least get our position out there. And it was funny because I got an email from someone who is very much on the other side um, you know, and, and said, uh, you know, and, I, and they were on the media list and <laughs> sent me an email saying, um, you know, I don't think this is funny. Um, I, 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 I'm totally opposed to everything that you do, but I have to admit, uh, I read that email and I laughed. You know, people communicate and people react at the emotional level, not at the intellectual level. The response that you're talking about is an instinctive one to the strong man, to the big man. Um, I'm not saying it's because I don't subscribe to Evo Psych. In fact, I just read a book by an anthropologist that pretty much, you know, prison rapes the whole concept. But um, we don't need to know why. We just need to know what. And what we know is that people respond very, very favorably to the man, also to the woman, but mostly to the man who has the courage to stand there and be the rock that everyone else can grab onto. And so, you know, the, the motto, I have a, about 509 uh, vile faceless minions. And these are the, the members of the evil legion of evil who have uh, vowed to mindlessly obey their supreme dark lord, um, and which comes in handy occasionally. And, uh, you know, their motto is, we don't care. So anytime you see people coming in and criticizing me, something that I've done, something that we've done, something, whatever, um, you see the response time and time again. We don't care. And it's funny because that always shuts it down very quickly. Don't engage. Don't engage. It's nothing to discuss. You know, they can bitch and whine and complain all they want. And I'm talking about the men here. <laughs> but, and nobody cares. And so once people realize that their actions are futile, they will usually desist. I don't know if you have any kids or not, but yeah. you know, it's painful to watch an adult constantly give in to a child because then it never ends. You know, well, but, that, that's the winning in the moment, regardless of the long-term consequences that we talked about earlier. Okay, fine. Here, have the ice cream. It's like, okay, all you've done is bought yourself the same behavior next time for another ice cream. Right, and, and it's amazing to see the opposite, to see how fast a kid who is in a full tantrum, you know, like, I want this. And the dad says, no. And, the, you know, the kid throws himself into a full tantrum and the dad doesn't react, just sits there and they're like, are you done yet? And the kid, the kid will like, Suddenly, magically, you know, get up, smile, walk off. You know, you're like, wait, weren't you just in the midst of a full meltdown five seconds ago? But, but the thing is, is that the kid realized, oh, this isn't working. Oh, well, you know, uh, I guess we'll move on with things. And, and, and that's how, how all of us work. You know, men work, women work. And, and we were talking about leadership the other day. And I think that this is what Trump is showing um, is that, you know, he is radiating and communicating, I don't care 
every single day. I mean, I was, I, I'm actually very interested after we're done here to see what he said to the uh, AI pack. Because, I mean, today he goes to the Washington Post, says, I think we need to rethink foreign policy. I don't know if we need NATO anymore. I mean, the, the level of, excuse the expression, zero fucks given. I mean, that's negative fucks given. <laughs> you know, a president, the presidential candidate standing up and just throwing off the cuff on his first foreign policy meeting. This is his first, this is his little, his first step out of the box on foreign policy is, eh, maybe we'll get rid of NATO. I mean, at some point, you know, people are, whether people agree with that or not, this is the important thing, whether they agree with that or not, whether they think it's crazy or not, that is a, uh, it is an act that people will instinctively admire and respond to because it is an act of strength and independence. Trump, yeah, I mean, Trump's power, and it's something I learned a couple of years ago, is that, look, I'd love to live in a world where mere reason and evidence and dispassionate communication of information and arguments won the day. You know, maybe in 500 years, we will live in that world if, you know, we philosophers get our way and, and uh, continue to preach the values of reason, empiricism, objectivity, and all of that. That is not the world we live in currently. And, um, you know, if, if you've got to be the leaders of the tribe, if you want to be the leader of the tribe of pygmies, maybe you're going to have to shove a giant pig bone through your nose, you know, because that's all they respect, you know. And, and so right now, and I think Trump is demonstrating this, uh, this is an old objectivist argument that uh, in any conflict between two positions, the more certain, the more dedicated, the more committed one will always win. You know, this is why Islam is heading west rather than Europe heading east. And um, that reality that um, confidence will win the day and people will test your metal, right? They will, they will push back. They will throw slings and arrows of outrageous nonsense at you. They will test you. And then if you pass that test, they will follow you, which goes the, I hate you. I don't care. I love you. I mean, that, that's, and this is just that phase that society is going through where the bad people have had a huge amount of certainty for you know, 50, 60 years. Uh, and, you know, we will get back to talk about the, the book on conservatism and, and open borders. But um, uh, he is he is he is very certain of what he's about. And uh, that certainty, uh, people are just pushing at it to see if he's going to hold the weight of social change. You know, people, if you're going to pivot, you, you know, a giant structure, you need a very, very deep pole in the ground is not going to pull out when you're sort of halfway around. And so they're just they're just testing the living crap out of the guy to say, okay, you want a big change, you know what you're about, so we're going to shit on you just to make sure you don't change. Because what's going to happen outside the country is going to be a lot worse than what's going to happen inside the country. So it's a giant shit test. Uh, I think he's actually passing with flying colors, and that's why I think he does actually have the capacity to move the dialogue. Yeah, I, I think that, um, I mean, he's really impressed me as, as the campaign has gone on. You know, he hasn't made anywhere nearly as many uh, unforced errors that I would have expected. You know, um, I had the opportunity to meet him once a long time ago, back in 1988. And uh, I, was, I was at the Republican National Convention. And uh, he was actually, we were both in uh, George W. Bush's private suite. And he was sitting, like, right behind me. Um, and it was kind of funny because... Afterwards, uh, I talked to him a little bit, but he was not the big alpha dog there that day. It was kind of funny because 
people were you know, very interested in, and kind of slightly gravitating towards him. But the, the person who was the big alpha dog was Henry Kissinger. Um, he was there as well, and it was maybe like, but there were only maybe 25, 30 people there tops. And it was funny to me how uh, um, Trump kind of had, it was like a, a, a big planet and a smaller planet with like people orbiting around them. And, uh, and so I, I think that because he's been in that environment for so long, um, and because he's seen so many vicissitudes, you know, he has had successes, he's had failures and that sort of thing. Um, I think that uh, that's given him the confidence to just plow ahead, even when he missteps, even when he says something stupid or when, you know, somebody throws a curveball at him. He just figures, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to keep going, you know, damn the torpedoes. I'm going to keep going straight ahead. And, and that's something that we haven't seen in a long time. And we're used to seeing, you know, Reagan is really the last leader who even had any, um, you know, he really had that only with regards to um, the Soviet Union. You know, well, he, and, and I think, I think, sorry to interrupt, but I, I think that um, Trump is Reagan who doesn't need the party machinery. Right. Although you know, to a certain extent though, I mean, Reagan didn't, Reagan took over the party machinery. He didn't, you know, he was always, he was always the, uh, outsider against the whole Bush establishment thing. And so, well, but, but his, his price was that he had to have Bush as his VP, right? And he had to basically hand the crown down. They said, okay, you can be the insurgent, but you have to hand it back to the Bushes. I think that was the price he paid. And that was the price conservatism as a whole paid, uh, by having Bush in because that led yeah, to Clinton, but, of course. But we don't, we don't know yet what's going to happen with, uh, the, the current situation. You know, we, we don't. We have no idea now. Um, I think it's unlikely that, uh, on the one hand, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, the guy wrote a book called Art of the Deal. So, you know, uh, striking a deal would not be a surprise. But, and you know, Trump being Trump, he's going to throw he's going to throw some curveball that none of us see coming would, would be my guess. Yeah, I try not to outthink Ben Carson on separating twin surgery. And I try not to outthink Donald Trump on deals. Because, you know, they're just world-renowned experts. So, you know, I just, uh, I, I try not to look at like, I don't know, uh, Roscoe Tanner, the tennis player in his prime and say, oh yeah, I could bet I could do that. It's like, nope, he's really good at it. I'm just a spectator, uh, but I'm going to have uh, some, I guess you could say faith, but there's some rational evidence for it uh, in, in seeing where he's going to go. And I just, you know, people get confused because, you know, I've got a video years ago about the truth about voting and don't get involved in voting and so on. This guy, though, is taking down the mainstream media, uh, the mainstream narrative. Uh, and that, to me, is the big barrier. That's the big blast doors between people being able to have rational conversations. This has got this mainstream media in the way, launching all this social justice warrior torpedoes at everyone. And everyone's just running and ducking for cover and can't have a rational conversation. You know, the opening of Saving Private Ryan, there aren't guys there having mint juleps and playing euchre with each other because there's bullets flying all around. And until the, the mainstream media can be pushed back, this this sort of girlish vicious verbal abuse hysteria that the mainstream media just pours on anyone who challenges the narrative until we can push that back 
there's not even a chance of having a rational conversation. And what I do like about him, it's like Moses parting the Red Sea, parting the verbal abuse of the mainstream media going through. And there is a little bit of space, a little space. And, you know, he's I think he's pushing for more every day, a little bit of space for some actual conversations to occur uh, in a public sphere without the mainstream media. You know, 6,000 lasers on your forehead and you're like, OK, when's the bullet coming? And, and I think that is where I see the value in it. Well, we were having a discussion on the blog the other day. We were talking about leadership. And you know, I remembered I was, I was sharing with some of my readers something that my, my grandfather, the bonus chair this is, um, you know, he fought on Guadalcanal, he fought on Tarawa, and he fought on Saipan. And one thing that he told me, um, and in two of those cases, they had to go in on the beach. And he said, you know, the one thing you always need to keep in mind is that if you're on the beach and the bullets are flying and everybody looks at you, do something. He said, do something, say something, doesn't matter what it is, just do it and, and they will follow you. And uh, another guy mentioned a story about a, a young lieutenant who had found himself under fire and he didn't know what to do. He had no idea. And he kind of froze up in that he, he didn't give any orders. He just rushed the hill and um, you know, got to the top of the hill and <laughs> turned around and the entire company was behind him, you know, all 300 men. And you know, I think that that's what Trump is doing. I think that Trump is in, largely instinctively um, rushing the hill of, of national collapse you know, because um, the U.S. is in a bad situation. Um, yes, you know, it, is. It, it has endured the largest invasion in human history since 1965. 61 million people, maybe, maybe more. And and so he is is responding to that, and that's why people like you and people like me, who probably don't have all that much in common with Trump, except for sharing a lot of his enemies but you know we're seeing him taking the hill and we're, we're going well hell i'm coming along because at least if we're up on that hill we can shoot back you know and so um i, I think that he's uh i mean i'm as dubious about his actual intentions as, as anyone you know I'm, I'm not an optimist i'm not a I, i'm i'm by nature a skeptic but um, you know, I have confidence. The re reason I have some confidence in him is because, you know, the man is kind of vain. And I think that he would rather be the leader that people want him to be than be just another go along with the establishment guy. If he wanted to be a go along with the establishment guy, he didn't need to run for president in the first place. No, he, he had that in spades already. Right. And, and he's really sacrificed that. You know, he, he is no longer welcome at a lot of those dinner parties. And, and, and weddings that he would have been invited to. So, um, you know, sometimes the so experiences change us and they can change us for the better and they can change us for the worse. And, you know, as skeptical as I am, the, 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 you know, when, when, I mean, like today, when he came out and said, ah, I'm not sure about NATO, right, that blew me away because, like, why would he say that if he was trying to, win votes if he was trying to please 
the New York Times editorial board. But he says that because he's a businessman and, and you know as an entrepreneur and I know as an entrepreneur that you can't let old resource consuming things hang about past their due date. You know, I mean, you, you constantly have to prune, you constantly have to undo uh, and to stay lean and mean. You know, you, you don't keep the 286s around anymore. Like, I mean, you, you've constantly got to be pruning in order to be lean. That doesn't happen in the government. Of course not. I mean, government just like barnacles just attach more and more dependence to the ship of state until it goes down. But I think he's got this pruning mechanism. Do we still need this? Why are we still paying for this? Let's get rid of it if we don't need it. It might even be more interesting than that. I mean, I think that you're probably right. But I also think that the recent situation between uh, Russia and Turkey in Syria really made some very strategic thinkers very nervous. Because with NATO, um, we're obliged to defend Turkey. And if Turkey goes and picks a fight with Russia, and you need to remember they fought something like seven wars, you know, they're, they're actually overdue for a Russian you know, a Russo-Turkish war, um, the U.S. would then there be obligated to get involved, you know, in a war with uh, Russia that we're not, our military is not in any shape to, to get involved with. You know, the, a lot of the, the military well, strategists well, were amazing. I'm sorry, too, but the absurdity of, of sending troops over to fight with Muslims against Christians is so bizarre. Like, that's just like anti-crusade, other planet dimension stuff. But sorry, go ahead. A lot of people were very. I mean, personally, I don't think that I don't think that Washington was making any effort to control um, ISIS in Syria at all. I think they were just going through the motions. But even so, um, a lot of experts were astounded at how effective the Russian military was with a very skeleton force of completely uh, destroying ISIS um, and allowing the Assad uh, government and Hezbollah to take over the ground there. And, you know, that was something that we have not been able to, the U.S. has not been able to accomplish in Iraq. And yet, you know, Russia was able to do it in about 100 days. Um, well, to be fair, it's the Democrats. Uh, and the Democrats and military decisiveness, not exactly uh, on the same bookshelf. True. But, but, the, but the point is, is that um, no one thought that Russia could do what it did. And, and, um, and so suddenly you're having them demonstrating uh, superior capabilities. You know, they, they took over Crimea. They managed to pull off this operation that was a, a, a very long distance operation. And is that really uh, an, an, a group that you want to be picking a fight with when you've got China, you know, uh, rising in the east? Um, you know, the, the U.S. military having been degraded by being wasted for, you know, 10 years in, in the Middle East. Um, and so, you know, for, for Trump to come out and, and call that whole thing into question is, uh, I think, both courageous and fascinating. Trump has then, it, it, it's happened so many times in, in particularly Anglo-Saxon history, a Protestant history, a sort of Western European history, just when you think they're doomed you know, they just they just pull someone out of their butts who can get the job done. I'm thinking sort of Chamberlain to Hitler kind of thing. Like just when you think there's not one shred of spine left in the Anglo-Saxon group, uh, suddenly, boom, you know, out comes someone and people are just like, they shake it off. They, sh they get out of the matrix of, of helplessness and they follow that. Listen, 
I'd love to keep chatting. Um, I <laughs> got a, some sense that it's dawn where you are. I think I can see the sun coming up on the on the dome here. But um, uh, really enjoyed the chat, of course. First of all, I hope we can get back together, talk a little bit more politics, a little bit more world military stuff, which is a kind of a fetish of mine. And, of course, uh, more of your work on uh, social justice warriors and conservatives, which is not exactly my favorite word, but it's not far <laughs> from my favorite word. Uh, can you tell my listeners, uh, I know you've got, what, about a third of the domain registrations on the internet are yours, if I understand this correctly. Um, where can people go to get the stuff that you're working on? You know, books, and and I know that you do a lot of blogging as well. Yeah. Uh, the best place is Amazon. You know, we've, uh, all the, the books are there. I, I think um, SJWs always lie after eight months is still the number one best-selling political philosophy book on Amazon, which is nice. Conservative um, is out uh, on Wednesday. I'm publishing a debate with a, an atheist friend of mine, Dominic Saltarelli, uh, called "On the Existence of Gods." Um, kind of esoteric, but if if that's your sort of thing, it's it's a, it's actually really interesting. Oh, it's certainly my sort of thing. So I look forward <laughs> to that. I'll, I'll be sure to send you a copy. Um, but what I really want to send you is um, two of the books that we publish at Castalia House: um, the Fourth Generation Warfare Handbook and A History of Strategy by Martin Van Krebel. Um, I think you'll find them particularly interesting. But uh, you know, the best place to find me is always uh, Vox Populi. Um, that's where the Evil Legion of Evil hang out, the Dread Ilk, the, the, um, you know, the Vile Faceless Minions. Um, it, it's, uh, it's an act of... I feel like we just crawled into the monster manual, but okay, I'll, uh, I'll take your word that that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, it's, it's just basically... Um, the level of devotion that they and obedience that they show to their dark lord, and so Excellent. Um, so it works. But uh, this has been great, and uh, I'll be more than happy to come back anytime. And I'm glad we finally met. Real pleasure. Thank you again uh, so much for your time today.